Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for October 19th through 25th, 2020. This is covering 3rd Nephi, chapter 27, through 4th Nephi. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Now we're ready for action. That's right. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 31 minutes, 15 seconds. Very excellent. And how long would that be on a daily basis? 4 minutes, 28 seconds. Excellent. And here we've got some time codes. So you can check it out chapter by chapter. And so let's get started with chapter 27. Now, the Savior has been with and teaching the people for two days, and he has left them, and the people, in verse 1, are united in mighty prayer and fasting. It says, it came to pass that as the disciples of Jesus were journeying and were preaching the things which they had both heard and seen and were baptizing in the name of Jesus, it came to pass that the disciples were gathered together and were united in mighty prayer and fasting. And Jesus again showed himself unto them. And the first thing he did was he said unto them at the end of verse 2, What will ye that I shall give unto you? First of all, what an amazing statement. But honestly, for me, a most unexpected answer. They wanted to know what they should call the church. Jesus gives them a very important answer, starting at verse 5. Have ye not read the scriptures? which say that ye must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name. For by this name shall ye be called at the last day. And whoso taketh upon him my name and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved at the last day. Therefore, whatsoever ye shall do, ye shall do it in my name. Therefore, ye shall call the church in my name. This is a principle that we've been taught rather recently, reminded of in Mm -hmm. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, how important that is. You know, he goes on to give the example of Moses. If a church is called after Moses' name, it's Moses' church. And that's interesting, considering that they had been living the law of Moses. And we know that some people had gotten caught up in kind of worshiping the law of Moses, so much so that they lost track of the Savior. And what the law of Moses was intended to do. So I thought it was neat he used Moses as an example of that. In the New Testament, Paul uses an example of that same kind of thing in the early church. We as a people seem to get caught up in, oh, I hope this doesn't come off wrong, but kind of worshiping the golden calf. You know, when Moses goes up on the mountain and he's gone a while, And so the people are back there going, well, we really need something to worship we can see, so let's make a golden calf. And we seem to want to be able to focus on something. I don't know why it's so hard for us to have the Savior be our focus, but maybe something more immediate. Anyways, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to the people of Corinth. And in the first chapter, verses 12 and 13, he's complaining to them about disunity in the church. And in verse 12, he says, Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? It really helps put that in perspective. Guys, <laughs> why are we pointing ourselves toward, like, why are, are, is our loyalty toward this group identity or this group identity or this tribal nature? The number one focus is Christ. And I think our reading today is going to be coming back to that again and again, not only to show us how important that is, but what are the consequences if we call ourselves in some other name than Jesus? So in verse 9, he brings up another idea again that he's, since chapter 11, since his first day that he's been using this analogy, he says, Verily I say unto you that ye are built upon my gospel. Remember, he's talked about being built upon his rock, his gospel, his doctrine. Therefore, ye shall call whatsoever things ye do call in my name. Therefore, if ye do call upon the Father for the church, if it be in my name, the Father will hear you. It's a good reminder to me, too, that as we serve in the church, we're not serving for our own glory, but Everything we do is in the name of Jesus Christ. It's for him. It's surrounded by him. It should be immersed in Christ and his purposes. You know, Jay talked about this earlier on, but just as a more specific reference, many of you may remember the October 2018 General Conference when President Nelson gave a talk emphasizing the need to call the church by its proper name. This instituted a very widespread initiative within the corporate church called the Honor the Name Initiative when the URL for the church's website changed from lds.org to churchofjesuschrist.org and email addresses changed and so on and so forth. From this talk, he says, quote, Even earlier in AD 34, our resurrected Lord gave similar instruction to members of his church when he visited them in the Americas. At that time, he said, Ye shall call the church in my name. And how be it my church, save it be called in my name? For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. Thus the name of the church is not negotiable. When the Savior clearly states what the name of his church should be, and even precedes his declaration with, Thus shall my church be called. He is serious. And if we allow nicknames to be used, or adopt or even sponsor those nicknames ourselves, he is offended. End quote. Yeah, that's a really good point. So let's go on to verse 10. He goes into a little bit more clarification on the whole calling of my name, and again expounding on the whole building upon my gospel, my foundation. Verse 10, And if it so be that the church is built upon my gospel, then will the Father show forth his own works in it. But if it be not built upon my gospel, and is built upon the works of men, or upon the works of the devil, verily I say unto you, they have joy in their works for a season, and by and by the end cometh, and they are hewn down and cast into the fire, from whence there is no return. For their works do follow them, for it is because of their works that they are hewn down. Therefore remember the things that I have told you. Behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you, 
that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. And my Father sent me, that I might be lifted up upon the cross. And after I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father, to stand before me, to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. I found the reference in verse 11 to having joy in their works for a season kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. I think this time when I was reading it, I was thinking that I guess in some respects, I don't know if it's a mercy, that those who choose not to invest in eternal joy can at least have some measure of joy temporarily. Hmm. So just in the same way that those things in which they are taking joy are not permanent, their joy is not permanent. It's a different mindset to invest in long-term joy. Well, and it's the age-old question, okay, why are these people that are being wicked seem to be happy or prosperous? And for me, I think there is great wisdom in a plan in which immediate consequences are not necessarily negative. Yeah. Because if they were, uh, there would be little test. Right. Yeah, it would be so easy. Oh, Oh, that hurt. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. No temptation after that. Right. Well, let's take a look at verse 18. He begins to conclude this idea as he says, And this is the word which he hath given unto the children of men. And for this cause he fulfilleth the words which he hath given. And he lieth not, but fulfilleth all his words. And no unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end. Now, this is the commandment. Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me and be baptized in my name that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. Brief pause. Verse 20 here has encapsulated everything that the Savior has been talking about since he arrived. His very first thing, well, his very first thing was to announce who he was, but as he began to teach the people, he taught them about baptism. And I think it's really interesting that each one of these parts of verse 20, repent, everybody, be baptized, sanctified, Holy Ghost, all of those things we have been taught are about unifying ourselves with God. To repent is to get rid of things that keep us from being unified with God and to call upon his strength to help us to do that. To be baptized is to be unified with God. And the reception of the Holy Ghost, could you be more unified with God than to be unified with specifically here a member of the Godhead, having it in you? I mean, all of this is to get us into that place where we are one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I just think that's pretty great. And I think that really is his whole presentation to the people, his whole message. Verse 21, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel, and ye know the things that ye must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. 
for that which ye have seen me do, even that shall ye do. Therefore, if ye do these things, blessed are ye, for ye shall be lifted up at the last day. You know, it's impressive how simple this doctrine is presented. And sometimes we get caught up in the minutiae of the church or of the scriptures or of the gospel. There was a quote that I found in the Institute Manual from Elder Neal A. Maxwell. This is from his book, For the Power is in Them. He says, quote, There is in the Book of Mormon a statement in which the Lord says, Behold, this is the gospel which I have given unto you. And then he describes his gospel. It is a simple story of a world to which a Savior has been sent, whom men may accept or reject, but who is, nevertheless, the Messiah. That simple story is the very thing, of course, the world cannot accept. And it is so simple that some may even be offended inwardly at times by the so-called simplicity of the gospel. There are those who may share some of our beliefs and values, but for whom the restoration of the gospel is a stumbling block they cannot get over the top of. But to most of mankind, what we proclaim is foolishness. End quote. That's such an important thing for us to remember. There is a great deal of simplicity in the gospel, and that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. And it's interesting, this harkens back in many ways to the story in Numbers of Moses raising the brass serpent, right? Mm-hmm. And because of the simplicity of just, oh, you mean we will be healed if we just look at this thing? Are you kidding? Where's the antidote to the venom? Where's the band-aids, whatever not? They just couldn't deal with the simplicity. And this is another one of those examples. Yeah. And the gospel is not easy. It wasn't meant to be, but it's also not complicated. Mm. You know, in Christ, I think back in verse 20, he summarized it really well. Really, what's at the core of this is where are our desires? What do we want to be? And if we want to be the best version of our divine selves, Christ has showed us what to do and we just have to do it. And that's not easy, but nothing good is easy. Too true. So let's take a look in verse 23. Now, what do we do with this message? Christ has just given this amazing message. We're on day three of the message. In verse 23, he makes it very clear. Write the things which ye have seen and heard. Save it be those which are forbidden. Write the works of this people, which shall be even as hath been written of that which hath been. For behold, out of the books which have been written, and which shall be written, shall this people be judged. For by them shall their works be known unto men. And behold, all things are written by the Father. Therefore, out of the books which shall be written, shall the world be judged. This isn't just for nations. The idea of writing what you have seen and heard, writing the works of your people, you, your family, friends, recording that stuff is really important. And one of the reasons it's so important is that it keeps us from forgetting. You know, just a quick aside, when I was a missionary, first of all, I've always been terrible at journal keeping. And so what I have is such a treasure to me. At the beginning of my mission, I was pretty good. And I loved to read those entries. As time went on, I became less good. And 
I always thought, well, I'm never going to forget this experience. This is ingrained in my mind. And for a few years, that was true. But looking back now, I only have ghosts of memories. And I wish so badly that I'd written things down more completely. So anyways, that's an important principle for sure. Well, on another note, I was actually really good at writing in my journal every day when I was on my mission. However, I don't always take a lot of time to read those. Fair enough. So there's two aspects of it, right? We need to write it down, certainly. But it would also be good and valuable for us to take some time to read what we've written and reflect on those experiences. Yeah, that really is important. John's been instrumental in our extended family in having a family newsletter. Reading those entries in Family Home Evening and Sunday Afternoons has been amazing. And that might be a neat thing to do with our spiritual writing, too. Notes we've taken at general conference or talks to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and share with one another interesting notes and things that we've written in the past. Good idea. Well, moving on to verse 27. And know ye that ye shall be judges of this people according to the judgment which I shall give unto you, which shall be just. Therefore, and I love this line, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. No gray area there. No, and what a great inspiration for all of us. What manner of women? What manner of children? What manner of elderly people? I mean, wherever you are in your life, what manner of person ought ye to be? Even as Christ is. Verse 28, Now I go unto the Father, and verily I say unto you, Whatsoever things ye shall ask the Father in my name shall be given unto you. Therefore ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For he that asketh receiveth, and unto him that knocketh it shall be opened. And as amazing as that invitation is, remember that it's not for us to say what form that answer should take, or even what the answer should be, or what we shall receive. We don't get to pick that. The Lord will give us what is best and most important for us. Our job is to receive it. Well, and also to ask. The Lord has made it clear that he has blessings available to us that are contingent on us asking for them. We have to make that effort. We do. So going on in verse 30, And now behold, my joy is great, even unto fullness because of you. And also this generation, yea, and even the Father rejoiceth, and also all the holy angels because of you and this generation, for none of them are lost. And now we have our prophecy and warning, verse 32. But behold, it sorroweth me because of the fourth generation from this generation, for they are led away captive by him, even as was the son of perdition. For they will sell me for silver and for gold, and for that which moth doth corrupt, and which thieves can break through and steal. And in that day will I visit them, even in turning their works upon their own heads. And it came to pass that when Jesus had ended these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. But wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leads to death, 
and many there be that travel therein until the night cometh, wherein no man can work. So here we have a prophecy of the fourth generation. How would it have been to hear this? They had just had three amazing days with the resurrected Savior of the world. To hear that down the road, our great-grandchildren are going to fall away and corrupt themselves. Well, and look at the way he phrases that, falling away. They will sell me. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have the Savior, but you know what? Let's trade him in for silver, gold, vanity, pride. Because what I love about the way he words that is that I can relate to that. You yeah. know, those times when I've sold the Savior for something I wanted now, you know, even a bowl of lentil soup. <laughs> to use the experience a mess of from, pottage from mess of yeah. pottage, right from the book of Genesis and Jacob and Esau. So with that warning, he ends chapter 27. Well, we end chapter 27. And so that brings us to chapter 28. Well, now he's turned to the 12. And let's see about that interaction, starting in verse one. And it came to pass that when Jesus had said these words, he spake unto his disciples one by one. What kind of interview is this? So imagine being one-on-one with the Savior, and he says this, What is it that ye desire of me after I am gone to the Father? Now, nine of the disciples, we have their request here in verses 2 and 3. And they all spake, save it were three, saying, We desire that after we have lived unto the age of man, that our ministry, wherein thou hast called us, may have an end, that we may speedily come unto thee in thy kingdom. And he said unto them, Blessed are ye, because ye desired this thing of me. Therefore, after that ye are seventy and two years old, ye shall come unto me in my kingdom. And with me ye shall find rest. Okay, so that's nine of them. And that was a good thing that they asked. And now look at the other three in verse four. And when he had spoken unto them, he turned himself unto the three and said unto them, What will ye that I should do unto you when I am gone unto the Father? And they sorrowed in their hearts, for they durst not speak unto him the thing which they desired. And he said unto them, Behold, I know your thoughts. And ye have desired the thing which John my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. Therefore, more blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death, But ye shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven. And ye shall never endure the pains of death. So now going forward here, we're beginning to get the description of the state in which they will be. Today we call it translated beings. What are those? What does that mean? So take a look at these characteristics as we go forward of what it means to be a translated being. Verse 8 again, And ye shall never endure the pains of death, but when I shall come in my glory, ye shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality. And then shall ye be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. And again, ye shall not have pain while ye shall dwell in the flesh, neither sorrow, save it be for the sins of the world. And all this will I do because of the thing which ye have desired of me. For ye have desired that ye might bring the souls of men unto me, while the world shall stand. Now, the three, it goes on to describe that they would have a fullness of joy and be in the kingdom of the Father and be 
one with Christ and the Father. And then in verse 12, it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he touched every one of them with his finger, save it were the three who were to tarry, and then he departed. So Mm. I don't know what that is, but that's kind of exciting. It's very exciting. And let me skip back to verse 6 a minute. When we talk about, ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. What's interesting about that is that we don't really have a record in the New Testament of exactly what that is. There's an implication at the end of the Gospel of John, but it's left with some kind of ambiguous interpretation. One of the revelations that we received in the Restored Church, Doctrine and Covenants, Section 7, is a writing of John the Beloved in which he clarifies what his desire was, and it, of course, corresponds with this. That's awesome. That was some excellent light and knowledge that we received in this restoration. Yeah. But going back, so now in verse 13, and behold, the heavens were opened, and they were caught up into heaven, and saw and heard unspeakable things. Now, it's not clear if all 12 have been caught up into heaven, but I suspect it's just the three. And it was forbidden them that they should utter. Neither was it given unto them power that they could utter the things which they saw and heard. And whether they were in the body or out of the body, they could not tell. For it did seem unto them like a transfiguration of them, that they were changed from this body of flesh into an immortal state, that they could behold the things of God. But it came to pass that they did again minister upon the face of the earth. Nevertheless, they did not minister the things which they had heard and seen because of the commandment which was given them in heaven. This is so amazing. Yes. And so now we get Mormon's description of the ministry of the three Nephites. Yeah, and this is something that he's done multiple times that we've studied where he will give a summary. It could be confusing when we read it because it sounds like, oh, okay, well, we're recovering material, but then he goes back and then we'll cover it in more detail. But so this is a kind of a quick overview. This is a retrospective of someone who has lived several hundred years after this and who knows this. Yeah. And he'll summarize it, and then we'll go back to that particular time. Yep. And now in verse 17, And now, whether they were mortal or immortal from the day of their transfiguration, I know not. But this much I know, according to the record which hath been given, they did go forth upon the face of the land and did minister unto all the people, uniting as many to the church as would believe in their preaching, baptizing them, and as many as were baptized did receive the Holy Ghost. Now, I love those verses, particularly verse 17, from the standpoint that Mormon doesn't know mm-hmm. whether they were translated on the day of this being caught up into heaven or whether it was done later. He just wasn't sure. Well, apparently the record wasn't very clear on that. Yeah. Because he says in 18, this much I know according to the record. So again, what a great record keeper. So in the next few verses, it describes the ministering of the three Nephite disciples. Prisons could not hold them. The prisons were rent in twain. Furnaces couldn't harm them. This had been proven three times. And they were twice thrown into dens of wild beasts, but received no harm. 
And it's funny when you're reading this because you're like, wow, who are doing these terrible things to them? Because everyone's peaceful right now. Everyone's, you know, in harmony. That's right. (laughs) And so understand that what he's telling us is this is something that's going to happen way ahead in the story. He's just telling us now, but it's not happening Mm -hmm. right now. It's just something that will happen. And so now he's bringing it back, verse 24. And now I, Mormon, make an end of speaking concerning these things for a time. Behold, I was about to write the names of those who were never to taste of death, but the Lord forbade. Therefore, I write them not, for they are hid from the world. Oh, man. (laughs) So we know that there are three of 12 names because the disciples are named. Yeah. But we don't know which of those 12. Well, and it should be pointed out, too, that we use the term in our church, the three Nephites, which is maybe a bit of a disservice because the Book of Mormon never calls them the three Nephites. They're called the three disciples. Right. And one of the things that's great about that is with the word Nephite, it can carry with it an ethnic or cultural or political identity. Baggage, yeah. And in some ways you could call everybody here Nephites, especially if you identify Nephites as those that follow Christ. But their ethnic, cultural, whatever their background is, is irrelevant. They are disciples of Christ. And it just continues this idea of oneness and unification, that their relationship with Christ is the number one most important identifying characteristic. So I love that the Book of Mormon does not call them the three Nephites. It's the three disciples, because that links them directly to Christ. Yep. And now we come to one of my more favorite verses about this. Mormon had said, I was about to write their names. The Lord forbade me. Their names are hidden from the world. Verse 26, but behold, I have seen them and they have ministered unto me. Now, perspective, people. Yeah. This is at least three centuries later. Yeah. So that had to have been amazing. Yep. To read about them and then to have actually met them and had them minister to you. Very cool. Well, can you imagine if maybe they expounded on a particular story? Well, yeah, they Um, only recorded this, but here's some more things that happened. (laughs) Because they were there. Yep. Verse 27, And behold, they will be among the Gentiles, and the Gentiles shall know them not. They will also be among the Jews, and the Jews shall know them not. And it came to pass, when the Lord seeth fit in his wisdom that they shall minister unto all the scattered tribes of Israel and unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and shall bring out of them unto Jesus many souls, that their desire may be fulfilled, and also because of the convincing power of God which is in them. And they are as the angels of God. And if they shall pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus, they can show themselves unto whatsoever man it seemeth them good. Therefore, great and marvelous works shall be wrought by them before the great and coming day when all people must surely stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yea, even among the Gentiles shall there be a great and marvelous work wrought by them before that judgment day. Wow. That is some powerful prophecy. And it stirs up the mind to imagination and wondering about what pieces of history in the world were they a part of? What ways in which have they served and led and helped the Father to bring forth his great works? How many people have interacted with them and never known? Well, and consider, and I'm not saying that this is true. This is John speculating, so just bear that in mind. We consider it the fulfillment of a sign that 
the nation state of Israel was restored, and this is 1948, could it be that the disciples may have had a hand in that? Yeah. It says that they were among the Jews yep. as well as among the Gentiles. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yep, worth thinking about. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, let's take a look again at Mormon. So this whole chapter 28 is just packed full of revelation about translated beings. And why not if Mormons had that experience with them? It's a remarkable thing. Verse 36, And now behold, as I spake concerning those whom the Lord hath chosen, yea, even three who were caught up into the heavens, that I knew not whether they were cleansed from mortality to immortality. But behold, since I wrote, I have inquired of the Lord. I just have to pause there. We are watching revelation happen as we read. He didn't know. And now he is going to update us since last he wrote. And we don't really get a sense of when he takes breaks in his writing. But obviously there had been a break. And so 37, he says, but since I wrote, I have inquired of the Lord and he hath made it manifest unto me that there must needs be a change wrought upon their bodies or else it needs be that they must taste of death. Therefore, that they might not taste of death, there was a change wrought upon their bodies that they might not suffer pain nor sorrow, save it were for the sins of the world. Now, this change was not equal to that which shall take place at the last day, but, and he's speaking here of the resurrection, but there was a change wrought upon them, insomuch that Satan could have no power over them, that he could not tempt them, and they were sanctified in the flesh, that they were holy, and that the powers of the earth could not hold them, and in this state they were to remain until the judgment day of Christ, and at that day, they were to receive a greater change and to be received into the kingdom of the Father, to go no more out, but to dwell with God eternally in the heavens. How amazing is that? I wonder if, you know, we've talked in the past and I've wondered the extent to which Satan's temptations are connected with the bodies that God has given us. That Satan has little, maybe no power to create but instead to take God's creations and try to influence us with regards to them. So, for example, when we're fasting, our body says, I'm hungry, I want to eat. Our spirit says, no, no, we're not eating right now. Satan, what he has to work with is to say, no, no, you should listen to your body. I feel less and less the older I get, like Satan has the power to just invent stuff. His goal is to get us to listen to our natural man and choose that versus our divine nature. So I wonder if that ties into this when he says that because of the change in their body, Satan could have no power over them. He couldn't tempt them. They were sanctified in the flesh. Their bodies had changed to such a way that Satan has nothing to work with. The body is not fighting against the spirit. The body doesn't have its own earthly agenda that Satan could make us take priority over the spiritual agenda. Food for thought, something that I just noticed this time and I'll be thinking about. Something else that I wanted to share that might be a useful tool for learning. Phrases like transfiguration or translated beings. This chapter is filled with information, but if you wanted a larger perspective, don't forget we have tools, scripture study tools. If you go into your scriptures area on your gospel library app, there are 
study helps. And one of those is the guide to the scriptures. There's lots of topics in there. If we were to look at the guide to the scriptures for these topics, it would say transfiguration is the condition of persons who are temporarily changed in appearance and nature, that is, lifted to a higher spiritual level so that they can endure the presence and the glory of heavenly beings. And it might go on to give you scripture references for what you're studying. In this case, we might see that the scriptures have numerous examples of those who have been transfigured, including Moses, but also Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John, and Joseph Smith. If we wanted to learn about translated beings, we could go to our guide to the scriptures, and we might learn that persons who are chained so that they do not experience pain or death until their resurrection in to immortality, which is what we've been talking about in the chapter, but some of these resources can give us more information. The purpose of someone to be a translated being is to bring souls to Christ. And the scriptures contain accounts of people who've been translated, including Enoch and Moses and Elijah and John the Beloved. So just a reminder of those resources. Don't forget to check those out. Bible Dictionary, Guide to the Scriptures, both great resources. Yes, very good resources. So now we're going on to chapter 29. And in this short chapter, we have an iteration of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon being a sign that the Lord is fulfilling his covenant to gather Israel in the last days. Verse 1, And now behold, I say unto you, that when the Lord shall see fit in his wisdom that these sayings shall come unto the Gentiles according to his word, then ye may know that the covenant which the Father hath made with the children of Israel concerning their restoration to the lands of their inheritance is already beginning to be fulfilled. Now, this is Mormon talking, and this should strike a very powerful interest into all of us. We are reading this. So when he talks about when these sayings shall come unto the Gentiles, number one, we're the Gentiles. I imagine most of our listeners are Gentiles. For those of you who might be Jews, welcome. Happy to have you here. Hmm. And secondly, we're reading these sayings. So these sayings have come to the Gentiles. And ye may know that the words of the Lord which have been spoken by the holy prophets shall all be fulfilled, and ye need not say that the Lord delays his coming unto the children of Israel. And ye need not imagine in your hearts that the words which have been spoken are vain. For behold, the Lord will remember his covenant, which he hath made unto his people of the house of Israel. So coming up, we've got this response. Here we have, as John pointed out, we're living in it. The words have been brought forth in the Book of Mormon. The Gentiles have been given this opportunity to be a part in this way of the work. And this is in preparation. But there are others who will respond differently. And this word spurn is going to come up a lot to define it. Spurn is to disregard or reject with disdain or contempt. So watch for that going forward. Yeah, right there in verse four. And when ye shall see these sayings coming forth among you, then ye need not any longer spurn at the doings of the Lord. For the sword of his justice is in his right hand. In other words, he's ready for battle. And the sword of the Lord, that's his word that Mm -hmm. cuts like a two-edged sword. And behold, at that day, if ye shall spurn at his doings, 
he will cause that it shall soon overtake you. Woe unto him that spurneth at the doings of the Lord. Yea, woe unto him that shall deny the Christ and his works. Yeah, look for the Lord's doings, his works, as he's going to describe them coming up, that people are spurning as we go on. So let me just summarize the last few verses. Yea, woe unto him that shall deny the revelations of the Lord. So that's one thing that people are going to spurn. Right. So these are the revelations of the Lord by prophecy or by gifts or by tongues or by healings or by the power of the Holy Ghost. Do these things sound familiar? And these are things that people are spurning. Right. They are gifts of the Holy Ghost. In the next verse, Yea, woe unto him that shall say at that day to get gain that there can be no miracle wrought by Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now that's odd. So someone who would insist that there can be no miracle wrought by Jesus Christ and insists on that in order to get gain. Yeah. So this would be to get money, to get power, to get... Popularity. Influence. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then in verse 8, Yea, and ye need not any longer hiss nor spurn nor make game of the Jews. For behold, the Lord remembereth his covenant unto them. So again, if we have any Jewish listeners, welcome. Thanks. So, But isn't it interesting, as we look at this list in 6, 7, and 8 on the doings and the works of the Lord, one of them is to demonstrate that the Lord remembers his covenant. And again, this is all part of the restoration. It's one of the purposes of these things, the Book of Mormon, coming forth so that you know, we've got the restoration of all these things, prophecy, gift of tongues, healings, miracles, power of the Holy Ghost, and even how people were treating the Jews, that the Lord has interest in all those things, and woe unto those who spurn them. And that brings us to chapter 30. Hi. And this is a very short chapter, as you may see, but this contains a very powerful admonition of the Lord as delivered by Mormon. And it starts with some very powerful key words. Verse 1, hearken, O ye Gentiles. Now, two things on that. Hearken was recently talked about in the April 2020 General Conference from President Russell M. Nelson. He says, quote, the very first word in the Doctrine and Covenants is hearken. It means to listen with the intent to obey, to hearken means to hear him, to hear what the Savior says, and then to heed his counsel. In those two words, hear him, God gives us the pattern for success, happiness, and joy in this life. We are to hear the words of the Lord, hearken to them, and heed what he has told us. End quote. So that's what we're doing. We're telling to the Gentiles, to us, hearken. Well, and let's talk about that. O ye Gentiles. There's two meanings for Gentiles. One is people of non-Israelite or non-Jewish lineage. And two, people without the gospel. So either one of those meanings can apply. But the mm. question then is, how can Gentiles become the house of Israel? And that is what he's going to go on to talk to us about. All right. So going back to the chapter, 
Hearken, O ye Gentiles, and hear the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, which he hath commanded me that I should speak concerning you. For behold, he commandeth me that I should write, saying, Turn, all ye Gentiles, from your wicked ways, and repent of your evil doings, of your lyings and deceivings, and of your whoredoms, and of your secret combinations, and your idolatries, and of your murders, and your priestcrafts, and your envyings, and your strifes, and from all your wickedness and abominations, and come unto me, and be baptized in my name, that ye may receive a remission of your sins, and be filled with the Holy Ghost, that ye may be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. This reminds me of another great resource that can help us to learn more about some of these topics. If you were curious about the house of Israel and what's related to that, True to the Faith is a manual that is in our Gospel Library app, and many of the topics in there, it's alphabetical by topic, are also part of the Gospel topics. Here's some things that might be useful to give you a taste of that manual, but just look through the list of topics. You'll find all sorts of fascinating things to study. It does not matter if your lineage in the house of Israel is through bloodlines or by adoption. As a member of the church, you are counted as a descendant of Abraham and an heir to all the promises and blessings contained in the Abrahamic covenant. It goes on, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you are a child of the covenant. You have received the everlasting gospel and inherited the same promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have the right to the blessings of the priesthood and to eternal life according to your faithfulness in receiving the ordinances of salvation and keeping the associated covenants. Nations of the earth will be blessed by your efforts and by the labors of your posterity. So thus we wrap up Third Nephi. Right. That's the end of the writings of Nephi Jr., Nephi, son of Nephi. Yeah. And... This incredible event of the Savior coming to them, spending three days with them, and then, according to Mormon, spending additional time with them. The three disciples who are going to be tarrying are there. We've spent a lot of time and a very short amount of time. But now we're entering 4th Nephi. Welcome to 4th Nephi. There's just one chapter. But even though we have one chapter... We are going to be covering hundreds of years in this one chapter. So now time is going to really speed up. Yeah, this is similar to the book of Omni that we read earlier. It's going to cover a great deal of time in a very short amount of space. Now, this is referred to as the book of Nephi. This would be Nephi the third, not third Nephi, but Nephi, the son of Nephi, the son of Nephi, the son of Helaman. That's who starts this book anyway. But just to clarify, Nephi the third, he's also Nephi the fourth in that he's the fourth Nephi that we've been talking about. Anyways, I like how John said it best. He's Nephi, son of Nephi, son of Nephi, who is the son of Helaman, who wrote the book of Helaman. So, all right, these first 14 verses, let's start in the 36th year. The disciples formed the church of Christ, and as many as would repent were baptized, received the Holy Ghost. Everybody is converted. Wow. I know. They had all things in common. The disciples of Jesus, as they saw him do, they healed the sick, raised the dead, the lame walk, the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, 
And the Lord, as you can imagine, prospered them exceedingly. They rebuilt cities that had been burned, even Zarahemla. Of course, the ones that were sunk in the depths of the sea, it was not possible to rebuild those. They no longer performed the ordinances related to the law of Moses, but instead followed the law that Jesus had given them, the new commandments, the new covenant. And about a hundred years had passed away. So now that brings us to verse 15. Well, one of the things that I wanted to call out is the impact that Jesus Christ has on people. One of the things that's called out in these verses is that these people had all things in common. That phrase should be very familiar to us. If it isn't, you need to study your church history on the United Order. This is the notion of people of Christ living together and taking care of each other's needs. This seems to happen every time Christ has a major effect on a group of people. This happens here in 4th Nephi. It happens in the New Testament, Acts 4.32. The phrase is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 78. That's part of the forming of the United Order. And the people of Enoch in Moses chapter 7 verse 18. And it happens here and it's just, it's amazing. Now, yeah. verse 15 talks about this impact of the people over this next course of a hundred years of history. And it came to pass that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. Lascivious is one of those words that we don't use anymore, but if you're not familiar with what it means, I really think it applies to attitudes today. It essentially means to relax or loosen, but it's related to sexual standards. So it means to be sexually loose or wanton or lewd or lustful. And boy, that's a big part of our culture today. So it's amazing to think of what a world might be like without that. That would seem to imply maybe a foundation in pride that you are looking at sexual behavior as more self-gratification. You know, you're concerned about that as a means to an end rather yeah. than what our Father in Heaven had placed it here for. Yeah, it indicates a lack of self-control standards. Right. Lack of self-control and an objectification of others. Yeah. So going back to the verse... And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers, nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites, but they were in one, the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. And how blessed were they! For the Lord did bless them in all their doings. Yea, even they were blessed and prospered until an hundred and ten years had passed away, and the first generation from Christ had passed away, and there was no contention in all the land. This awesome. had to be an amazing thing for Mormon to write, and it had to be the most heartbreaking thing for him to look at, because he's on the other side of this. He is. He's seen this civilization crumble. Yeah. Spoilers. Yeah, everything that he's well. just listed here that's absent, his society's filled with it, including robbers and murders and lasciviousness and all of that. Yeah. 
But going back to the victory that these people have achieved, from the Institute Manual, I had found a quote from then-elder Russell M. Nelson. This is from April 1989 General Conference. He says, quote, Personal peace is reached when one in humble submissiveness truly loves God. Heed carefully this scripture. There was no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. Thus, love of God should be our aim. It is the first commandment, the foundation of faith. As we develop love of God and Christ, love of family and neighbor will naturally follow. Then will we eagerly emulate Jesus. He healed, he comforted, he taught. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Through love of God, the pain caused by the fiery canker of contention will be extinguished from the soul. This healing begins with a personal vow. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. This commitment will then spread to family and friends and will bring peace to neighborhoods and nations. Shun contention. Seek godliness. Be enlightened by eternal truth. Be like-minded with the Lord in love and united with him in faith. Then shall the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, be yours to bless you and your posterity through generations yet to come. End quote. Can you imagine that kind of a world? Can you picture it as President Nelson describes, as the scriptures describe? It's amazing. Now, what could possibly destroy a society like that? Let me give you just a little bit of hint before we go on to it. One of the key phrases there in verse 17, Neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites. All of the worldly labels that the natural man is so prone to want to throw to people, they're gone. There's only one label left, and it's the only one that matters. Everyone is a child of God. Yep. But what happens when that's no longer true? That's the question that fourth Nephi answers, and it's not a good answer. 19 through 22, we've got Nephi, who would have been writing this. He dies. Amos is his son. He keeps the record for 84 years. And then in verse 20, it says they had peace, save it were, a small part of the people who had revolted from the church and taken upon them the name of Lamanites. So this is approximately the 194th year. And so it begins. It begins with people coming up with another identity that is more important than the divine identity. So then Amos dies and his son Amos takes over the record. So the Lamanites appear. Why Lamanites? Why didn't Nephites appear or Jacobites or Ishmaelites? Why Lamanites? There's a quote that I grabbed from the Institute Manual. This is from a multi-volume book called Doctrinal Commentary on the Book of Mormon by Joseph Fielding McConkie, Robert L. Millett, and Brent L. Topp. 
They say, quote, Why would it matter to a people what they were called? Why would it be so important for them to be called Lamanites? Why would a group choose to forsake the transcendent privileges of unity in order to be designated by this or that name? The answer is simple. Pride. A desire to be different. A yearning to be acknowledged. A fear of being overlooked. A craving for public notice. The righteous feel no need for attention, no desire to be praised, no inclination to demand recognition. The prideful demand their rights, even when they are wrong. The prideful feel that they must do things their way, even when that way is the wrong way. The prideful insist that they must pursue their own path, even when the road they take is wide and broad and leads to destruction, end quote. I love that. I thought that was a really appropriate outline of what happened. So what was the disintegrating factor here? Pride. Yeah. It boils down to pride. Well, and the way it manifested itself is what the Lord talked about in chapter 27. Who do we call ourselves after? That's who we follow. And here we see that played out. So, going on in 23, what else do you notice here that is threatening the unity of the people? And why are we looking for that? Because this is a warning to us. What do we see here that threatens the unity of the people? One thing is to call ourselves by some other name and make that be the most important identity. 23, and now I, Mormon, would that ye should know that the people had multiplied in so much that they were spread upon the face of the land and that they had become exceedingly rich because of their prosperity in Christ. Now, is that bad? We know from our past reading, it is not by itself. And verse 24, And now in this 201st year, there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing of costly apparel, and all manner of fine pearls and of the fine things of the world. And from that time forth, they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them. So with the wealth and prosperity came people wanting their stuff to distinguish them from people who didn't have their stuff. And they didn't want to share their stuff. All things common lasted not quite 200 years. Yeah. And remember our dating system here, this is 200 years from the sign of Christ's birth. Right. Not necessarily 200 AD, but... Right. In verse 26, and they began to be divided into classes and they began to build up churches unto themselves to get gain and began to deny the true church of Christ. So again, we had the wealth that led to them enjoying the finer things that they didn't want to share. Things weren't common. They divided into classes, the haves and the have-nots, perhaps. And they began to build up churches in order to get gain and not for the glory of Christ. Going on in verse 27, we've got other churches appearing. Look for the results of this pride as we continue. And it came to pass that when 210 years had passed away, there were 
many churches in the land. Yea, there were many churches which professed to know the Christ, and yet they did deny the more parts of his gospel, insomuch that they did receive all manner of wickedness, and did administer that which was sacred unto him of whom it had been forbidden because of unworthiness. Does that sound familiar in our day and age? It sounds like this church was driven by superficial compassion for those who had been denied sacred things because of unworthiness. Yeah. They administered it because that's not fair. That hurts their feelings. Right, that there's no standards. There's no expectation exactly. that you need to be better. That's the whole gospel of Jesus Christ to elevate us. And how did this church do that was willing to not ask anything of its people? The church did multiply exceedingly in verse 28 because of iniquity and because of the power of Satan who did get hold upon their hearts. And again, there was another church which denied the Christ. And they did persecute the true church of Christ because of their humility and their belief in Christ. And they did despise them because of the many miracles which were wrought among them. Therefore, they did exercise power and authority over the disciples of Jesus. Really? These are the disciples of Jesus who did tarry with them. And here it is. They did cast them into prison. But by the power of the word of God, which was in them, the prisons were rent in twain, and they went forth doing mighty miracles among them. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding all these miracles, the people did harden their hearts and did seek to kill them, even as the Jews at Jerusalem sought to kill Jesus according to his word. So they're seeking to kill beings which obviously can't die. Well, and let's get a sense of the time frame here. So we're looking at what was our last time stamp. 210 years. It's so hard to tell when we're just reading this, but imagine what was going on 210 years ago from mm -hmm. today. This would have been the beginning of the 1800s. Right. Imagine somebody who was alive at the time that Joseph Smith had his vision and perhaps knew Joseph Smith and heard a firsthand account of his vision of the father and the son. Picture that person still being alive today. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. Well, and for those who deny the Christ, these are people that are saying, look, the witnesses from 200 years ago, including those people who've lived all that time, it doesn't matter. We deny it. Well, and it's interesting. I wonder what they deny. Do they deny that Christ ever lived or ever came? Because that would seem like kind of a hard sell. Yeah. So maybe they just denied that he's the Redeemer, that he's the Savior, that this was just something that people made up, old wives' tales that were believed over so many years, with the exception of these three people who were actually there, who saw everything happen, and yeah. who saw more than they could even tell us about. Yeah, we need to silence them because they're hurting our feelings with what we've chosen to believe. So well, and, we've got and to silence them. As Mormon told us before, what are some of the other ways they attempted to silence them? Well, the people attempted to put the three disciples into a fiery furnace and dens of wild beasts, but that didn't have any effect on them. No. It's it interesting didn't. that both of these strategies are from the book of Daniel. Yeah. Well, okay, so verse 34, nevertheless, the people did harden their hearts. So again, they saw these miracles of trying to destroy these people, 
But the Lord continued to protect them, but they hardened their hearts, for they were led by many priests and false prophets to build up many churches and to do all manner of iniquity. And they did smite upon the people of Jesus, but the people of Jesus did not smite again. And thus they did dwindle in unbelief and wickedness from year to year, even until 230 years had passed away. That's an interesting phrase. But the people of Jesus did not smite again. There was a quote from the old Gospel Doctrine Manual that I found from President Gordon B. Hinckley from October 1982 General Conference, where he says, quote, Let us reach out with love and kindness to those who would revile against us. In the spirit of the Christ who advised us to turn the other cheek, let us try to overcome evil with good, end quote. Always hard to do, but always the best thing to do. It is. It's going to get a lot harder for these people. Verses 35 to 38, we see that in the 231st year, now we have a great division. The true believers in Christ go by the name of Nephites. This could include Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites. Those who reject Christ are called Lamanites. And that includes the Lemuelites and the Ishmaelites. From the Institute Manual, they included a segment of a New Era article in April 1994 from Elder Neil A. Maxwell called True Believers. And he defines what true believers are like. He says, quote, True believers are settled in their views of Christ. Despite their weaknesses, their spirituality is centered on the Savior. So their views of everything else are put in that precious perspective. True believers gladly perform their duties in the kingdom. These duties are usually measurable and straightforward. They include partaking worthily of the sacrament, rendering Christian service, studying the scriptures, praying, fasting, receiving ordinances, attending to family duties, paying tithes and offerings. True believers are humble They are meek and lowly of heart. They are not easily offended. They do not resist counsel. True believers are willing to do what Christ wants. Are we willing to let the Lord lead us into further developmental experiences, or do we shrink back? The things which enlarge the soul inevitably involve stretching. True believers have a balanced contentment, They strike a balance between being too content and wishing for a more important role. True believers truly pray. Their prayers are sincere. The true believers' prayers, at least some of the time, are inspired. True believers have both right conduct and right reasons for that conduct. They are so secure in their relationship with the Lord that their goodness would continue even if nobody were watching. True believers rejoice in the success of others. They don't regard colleagues as competitors. True believers remember that forgetting is part of forgiving. They follow the Lord's example. I will remember their sins no more. True believers are innocent as to sin, but not naive. They are kind, but candid. They love their fellow men. True believers are happy. Instead of a woeful countenance, true believers in Christ have a disciplined enthusiasm to work righteousness, 
They are serious about how they live life, but are also of good cheer, end quote. These are things to think about, and I'm sure that the true believers at the time that this distinction was made followed these examples. Well, and let's look at the contrast to that, if we must. And we must. In verse 39, one of the real tragedies here is that the Lamanites are teaching their children to hate the children of God. They've created an us and a them. And again, from the Institute Manual, there's an article from the February 1997 Enzyme called A More Excellent Hope, written by then-Elder Russell M. Nelson, counseling parents to avoid using labels that polarize or lead to the development of prejudices in their children's hearts. He says, quote, When the Nephites were truly righteous, their previous patterns of polarization vanished. There was no contention in the land because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. Unfortunately, the sequel to that story is not a happy one. This pleasant circumstance persisted until a small part of the people had revolted and taken upon them the name of Lamanites, reviving old prejudices and teaching their children again to hate, even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. And so the polarizing process began all over again. I hope that we may learn this important lesson and delete segregating names from our personal vocabularies. The Apostle Paul taught that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Our Savior invites us to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, all are alike unto God, end quote. Amen. Well, Mormon will take us in verses 40 to 49 through the end of 4th Nephi with, well, not good news. 244 years have passed away and the wicked became exceedingly more numerous than the people of God. Then we get 262 years passing away. Gadianton robbers reappear. Nephites become proud and from this time, the disciples began, and this is the three disciples, began to sorrow for the sins of the world. After 300 years, both the Nephites and the Lamanites became wicked. And again, let's put 300 years in perspective for us. Imagine what was going on, say, in the beginning of the 1700s. That's how long until both nations really became irredeemably wicked. You know, and it's interesting, we haven't really touched into the old world, but it might actually benefit us to make that comparison right now, because it is interesting. At this point, the Christian church in the old world, in Israel, has reached a peak of separation, of separation into various factions. This is before the councils of Nicaea and Athanasia, the rule of Constantine in Rome. So the churches were not united. There were some teaching some things, some teaching another, and they were there, but the apostles were gone as well. They had all kind of fallen into disarray. Yeah, and that had happened over quite a period of time, which we find ourselves here in as well. 
305 years, Amos Jr. finally passes away. And he's kept the plates, unless we're missing something, for 111 years since the 194th year. I find that really interesting because that means that he was probably very young when he received the plates, or you would assume, but he kept them for over 100 years, over 111 years. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if the lifespan of people at that time was maybe a little longer than it had been. I don't know. Yeah, that's certainly possible. And what's interesting, too, is he doesn't give it to his son. He gives it to his brother. And Amaron, his brother, keeps the records. After 320 years, Amaron, under command of the Spirit, did hide up the records which were sacred, yea, even all the sacred records which had been handed down from generation to generation. And thus is the end of the record of Amaron. And this, my friends, is the end of the record of Nephi. Yep. So now we have finished all of the things that Mormon has abridged. Yep. And we are caught up to Mormon's time. What an accomplishment. Well done. Yeah. And now I should say, as we're going forward, we are going to get an abridgment of Mormon's own record. But from here on out, we're going to be writing, well, that's not true. We will be hitting ether. But in the books of Mormon and Moroni, we'll be writing and seeing things from the contemporary point of view of what's happening with the Nephites. What an exciting time. It's not all good, but there are good lessons to learn. I think we can summarize this lesson as it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, to coin yes. Charles Dickens' phrase. We're so <laughs> grateful to have shared this with you. Yeah. This was an amazing thing to study, and we can look forward to some wonderful things yet to come as we get into Mormon, Ether, and Moroni. We're almost done with the Book of Mormon. Yep. Messages for our day, and we'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>